Africa Agenda is a podcast that features conversations with people working at the intersection of open data, open government, and sustainable development in Africa. Hi, this is Let's Talk Data, the Maputo Protocol Edition. We are speaking with Faiza Jama Mohammed. Uh, Alia, she was telling us about how she got involved in the women's rights movement uh, and, and some of her early work um, and also the, the, the early days of, of the Maputo Protocol's um, birth, really, how, how, it, how it began. Uh, uh, there's a lot of work, you, you've, you've talked about the civil society organizations coming together, going back into, into their countries to mobilize their, their, their state officials to, to attend the expert meeting mm-hmm. um, in, in, uh, in Addis. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, how, you know, the, 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 once the treaty was, was, once the protocol was there, the draft was, was at, at the standard that we had hoped it would be. Uh, how, how did we go from having a good document mm-hmm. to having a, a ratified document? Yeah. At, at, right. at present, um, the status list, I think, shows 49 signatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've, we've come quite a long way yeah. in, in 15 years, very fast. Mm-hmm. The comparison, there's some instruments that still um, mm-hmm. hover around the bare minimum to come into force right. many years later. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so probably could tell us a little bit about that story. Pleasure, sure. Um, after we were successful in uh, getting the adoption of the protocol, um, we looked at how many years was it really since from the day it was started to give you know the, you gave the instructions to the uh, commission to start writing it to the date it was adopted. It became like six, uh, eight years. Eight so years. Like eight years from, yeah. from instruction, from this was a request from heads of state at the summit uh, to the commission. Y- yes, when they it was right after uh, the Vienna Convention okay. uh, that they have instructed the commission. Uh, of course, it was done through lobbying by women's groups. The need for a uh, you know a protocol because the charter doesn't uh, adequately address yeah. uh, the rights of women, and there's a provision in the charter, uh, African Charter, to do supplement. Uh, protocols. So, so this that, is African that's Charter on Human and People's Rights. Yes, African Charter on Human and People's Rights. So that's why it's a supplementary protocol to the Charter. Uh, so um, it took eight years to for the protocol to be adapted by the heads of states for its formation and all that. Um, and when we came, we said, how long does it take uh, the the instrument to get into force? Um, first, uh, 15 countries are required to sign, uh, you know, ratify it for it to enter into force. Um, we looked at the African Charter, we looked at the Charter on the Rights and Welfare of the Child, we looked at other instruments that also relate to human rights, and on average we see that it takes five years for, for countries to ratify and enter into force. So we said five years is too much. Five, we already five years to get to 15. <laughs> yeah, we said already eight years yeah. it took to adapt. Yeah. Now another five years to ratify is going to be too much. Yeah. And it could be longer. longer. So then we said, OK, let's come together. We are successful in, in terms of pushing for a stronger protocol. Now let's come together to push for speedy ratification. Um, 
So we mobilized, we established the Solidarity for African Women's Rights Coalition. All those organizations who were in the Addis consultation and you know pushing for a strong protocol were part of the discussion. And then we invited more other organizations who could be also interested, recommended by the others who were present. Uh, Feminet uh, convened a meeting, uh, facilitated that, and that's how the coalition uh, was born. Uh, Equality now became the secretariat uh, for the coalition, um, and from there on we started to be at every summit, um, pushing countries to ratify, and we will prepare uh, policy briefs for them. Um, why it was critical for them to, you know, move on with the ratification. We started to see what countries were interested in to use as a as a lobbying point. For example, we had Lesotho was uh, interested in uh, hosting the African Court, and then we were lobbying the ambassador. You know, we we're going to mobilize to to campaign against that, that so that Lesotho doesn't get it because you have not ratified the women's protocol. And mm -hmm. so we don't think you should host the, you know. So we're using things like that to, and the ambassador said, no, we are going to ratify the, uh, the protocol. It's already in the process. And, and sure enough, they were one of the first uh, countries to ratify the protocol. Um, we started to also use other strategies like uh, green, yellow, red cards, you know, saying that if you have ratified, you are honorary with a green card. If you have not uh, signed even, you are red carded. And if you have, uh, you know, uh, signed but not ratified, then you are yellow carded, you know. So, uh, uh, so that created a competition. Tell us a little bit about, about that. Um, I, that 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 campaign because mm. I know it was for some um, for some I, I, I suppose in, in in government at the time it was a source of great anxiety if, mm -hmm. if they hadn't signed and they're going to show up at a summit um, yes. and for some in observers from the sidelines it must have been quite entertaining um, yes but you know how did how did the red card um, how did the red card campaign campaign Play work yeah. actually we, we believe that the, that uh, scoring card um, facilitated the speedy ratification. Uh, it pushed countries to, because no one wanted to be seen as a yellow or red. They wanted all to be in the green. You so know. Did you find them in the corridors? Uh, was it? Well, you see, usually uh, when the summit opens, yeah. uh, the f the opening uh, session of the executive council is where we usually target it. So okay. the. Council opens while they are settling down, and if the meeting is still not called, that's the moment we all rush in. We go to the different countries, we give them the cards, and at the back we had a message from Grasa Michelle urging them to ratify the, the, the protocol. Um, and then we gave them. So they opened this, and they are looking at it. So while they're reading the message from Michelle, then at the back the color appears of the card. Okay. So there was a, you could see a mix of red, green, you know, <laughs> different countries as, as they're they read, as yeah. they are reading, yeah. yeah. So the feedback we received later on is that some countries uh, were disputing that they have ratified that they should be green and not uh, yellow. Um, and then the AU Council was saying, um, well, we are not the ones uh, scoring you, but just uh, if to give you the facts, we don't have your instrument of ratification, so the AU has not recognized you as a country that has ratified the protocol yet. So, so the, it became an awareness for them that they should deliver, uh, you know. 
for some, I guess, the step missing was that they have not delivered it to the EU. So they have become now conscious that you need to deliver uh, so that you are counted as a country that has ratified. Do you so have examples of that? Of the cards. Currently, no, in terms of countries that ratify mm -hmm. and then don't deposit, but consider they themselves at, at present. Yeah, for example, when we were in uh, Equatorial Guinea, um, we were lobbying um, the Ministry of Gender about why, what's the challenge, why are they not ratified. Um, by then, already the protocol has entered into force. Um, and they said they have ratified them. So then, did he depose it? And they said, uh, what do we do? We didn't. So we said, now you are hosting the EU summit, why don't we you know, present it now? So we informed the uh, gender directorate, who then organized the uh, chairperson himself to receive the minister and receive the instrument of ratification. You know. So they didn't have to do a special trip to, the, to Addis? No, to they didn't the need to do that. Usually what happens is they, they, they submit uh, to the, you know, through note verbals to the embassy and the embassy then submits to, to the AU. But sometimes when they give heads up to the uh, AU, the AU can organize uh, a smaller kind of a ceremony to receive officially the instrument of ratification. So the ambassador will deliver to the uh, chairperson or, it, or to the commissioner of political affairs. You know, they capture those uh, and they usually boost it in the website. Yeah. So that's how you know we managed to push Equatorial Guinea to submit their you know right out the spot of the summit. Yeah. Uh, the same thing happened with Congo and Cameroon. Uh, Cameroon they had ratified, but they had issues with it. Uh, at the point when they want to deliver to the AU, there was uh, protests by religious, uh, you know, by the faith-based groups. Uh, you know, again, uh, female genital mutilation, reproductive health rights. You know, especially they were focused on abortion. You know, so um, the government was afraid uh, to move forward with it. Uh, the ministry actually was given instructions to stop the deposit and then they were just sitting on it, you know. So it took, uh, you know, the AU uh, chairperson to urge them to, to deliver, to deliver it, yeah. Because uh, they also committed uh, right after the adoption of the protocol, what we call uh, uh, Solomon Declaration on Gender Equality. And so every year they have to report on the progress they are making. So that report captures the protocol also. Article 9 of that declaration says we will ratify the protocol. So it basically lists which countries have ratified, which countries are lagging behind. And so in that report, the chairperson urged countries who have ratified, but are still you know, lacking to, to deposit it to do so. And, and they did soon after that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the coalition, um, the, the red card, yellow card, um, green card campaign worked really well yes. at the summit yes. um, to, get, so it, yeah. to get progress. Yeah, so it became the fastest human rights instrument adopted at the AU level in two and a half years, you know. So it, we cut the average half by, by half, yeah. you know, when, when we managed to. So all that collective action has worked favorably. And when the coalition came uh, together, uh, there were three uh, main objectives. Um, 
first was to ensure speedy ratification, but the commitment was also we should not hire until all the countries have ratified, mm -hmm. so that all women uh, in Africa can have a legal instrument that is binding on their countries uh, and protecting their rights. The second was that we don't want uh, it to be forgotten on the shelf. Uh, yeah. So it has to, you know, we have to breathe life to it. So how do we do that? You know, we have to push countries to fulfill the, the obligations they have under the protocol. We should uh, therefore do certain things. Um, and I will explain that uh, some of the things we have uh, embarked on. The other uh, thing was to create awareness about the protocol continent-wide, uh, including especially women to know that this is what their country has committed to do, um, and their rights are you know, provided for under this protocol. So a lot of uh, members translated uh, the protocol into local languages. Um, there was a radio drama called uh, Crossroads, which also won an award. Uh, which spoke to the realities of, you know, local women um, and connected it to different provisions of the protocol. Um, and that was translated into different uh, languages also and, and applied uh, through uh, radio, com you know, releases through the radio so that people were also getting information. Um, Members also took upon themselves to reach out to parliamentarians and, you know, and lobby them. Yes, and to tell them about the protocol and what role they can play in terms of holding the state accountable to com to honoring their commitments under this. So there was a lot of sensitization campaigns around that. Uh, the way we approach it was that every organization uh, who was a member of the coalition has a mandate, you know, the organization, you know, you are not doing everything under the sun, but you are focusing on certain issues. We have groups like uh, Center for Reproductive Rights, for example, who is focused on uh, reproductive health rights. Same thing with IPAS Africa Alliance. We have uh, Oxfam, a member who is doing more than uh, the rest of us. For example, they're doing uh, food security, they're doing um, uh, even things to do with health, education, and and there are organizations at the local level who just focus only on female genital mutilation. You know, uh, equality now is focused on four program areas. Uh, we are a legal advocacy organization. We push uh, for systemic change, and so for our part, what we took was first to continue coordinating the ratification uh, so that all the other countries who have not ratified can join. So to date we have 39 countries who have officially been recognized by the AU. There are two countries who are claiming that they have ratified, South Sudan and Ethiopia, but who have not yet deposited their instrument. So they're like Cameroon yeah. and, and Equatorial Guinea yes. back, yes. back then. Yeah. So we're not counting them until AU recognize that they have and we are continuing to push them to deposit their instrument. Uh, but uh, we developed what we call um, uh, uh, the multi-sectoral approach. So oftentimes what happens is countries, because they have to also report to the African Commission yeah. about the progress they are making in, in honoring these commitments, um, often we tell the Ministry of Gender or the machinery responsible for gender that this is about women, you know, so it's your docket, you know. But 
the protocol is beyond uh, the sec, uh, you know the, just the Ministry of, of Gender or Women's Affairs. It is uh, speaking to articles about education, articles about health, articles about land, uh, marriages. You know, so it is different sectors of government need to be involved and working together to deliver these commitments. So we have been pushing countries to look at a multi-sectoral approach in honoring their commitments, and that may be a key role that the Ministry of Women can play is to coordinate the government action. So we take, uh, for example, female genital mutilation. Female genital mutilation happens at clinics. You know, you can find in hospitals, they are cutting girls. So Ministry of uh, Health has a role to play to give directive to the, uh, you know, uh, clinics, hospitals, and to put... To the health workers. Yes, and to monitor that the policy is being applied. Ministry of Education also, girls are taken out of school early on, you know, how do they monitor and ensure that, you know, the head teacher is making sure girls are not taken out of school to be cut and put into early marriage, for example. The police, sometimes they don't see this as an issue. They don't act to protect girls from harm, even when there is a law existing they would ignore. So who is taking them to task to ensure that girls are protected from FGM? So unless all sectors are brought together and the issues discussed and everybody's role is defined and then they have action plans to implement, then you know we will not get anywhere. So that's how we see it, that they can implement and fulfill their obligations under the protocol. On the other hand, we see also um, the need for lawyers to know the protocol and apply it. Mm -hmm. So that's another way we see that it can be, you know, adapted, domesticated, implemented by lawyers using it themselves. So what that means is training lawyers and developing tools for them to reference. So we have done a lot of trainings for lawyers. Uh, we have trained over 400 lawyers uh, in different countries mm -hmm. uh, in Africa and we have produced it, uh, manuals for them to apply. We have, you know, we have a good number of resources um, who are knowledgeable about uh, engaging at the African human rights uh, regimes. Um, and so we don't, you know, wait, uh, just leave them with the training, but we also say we are ready to help with and work with you on cases you are taking. And so there are a number of cases that we have also been involved in who are mentioned in the protocol, who, you know, where it's applied uh, in different countries. Um, so that way we feel like we are contributing to slowly bringing a culture where the protocol becomes an instrument that is used to defend the rights of women at the court. Um, then the feedback we got from the lawyers is that the judicial officials are the ones who are making the final decisions on cases. So they also need to know about the protocol provisions. Um, so we started reaching out to, to the judicial officials also and have been also uh, organizing uh, trainings around the protocol uh, for them.
No, that's, uh, the, that whole of government approach really is, is one that you know um, I, I believe is necessary, not just for um, human rights, yeah. uh, but also some of the things we're doing that we, we may not think of as, as human rights, like uh, food security, mm -hmm. uh, that you, you cannot just think about uh, food security as a administrative agriculture issue. Some of these things mm -hmm. require this kind of approach, yeah. you know, bringing a whole of, of government yeah. um, view to, to getting yeah. things done. Yeah. Food security actually uh, a right, a human right, and it's yes. recognized as such by the protocol. By the protocol. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll take a quick break, <laughs> and when we come back, I'd like to hear about uh, the areas you feel we've had the most success in. Okay. Um, so uh, we'll be back.